my name is Barbara Iverson. I'll be your moderator today. Um, I'm an expert in interpersonal skills based here in Berlin, um, in addition to the international sign language interpretation as part of our dialogue today. All of us appearing on camera are giving a short description of ourselves for those participating who are visually impaired. I am a white woman with medium length curly blonde hair wearing a black shirt and red lipstick. So with this series, we want to continue challenging the civil society sector with inspiring conversations based on the constant change that digitalization brings to our societies. Each discussion will be a call to action for CSOs to take a more active role in shaping our digital future. All right, today we are putting the spotlight on transcontinental gig work what to do about the next round in global exploitation. The global division of labor in the industrial age is well known. The global South provides raw materials and cheap labor in its sweatshops for multinational companies from the global North to supply global markets. The digital economy functions similarly. The global South provides Colton and other raw materials as well as cheap online labor. A reserve army of gig workers, both in the global north and south, work as online contractors for the benefit of large companies mainly based in the global north. Given its transnational nature, what kind of self-organization or regulation does this new labor relationship require? Should it, yet again, privilege workers from the global north over those from the global south? Could opportunities for online work stem illegal south-north migration? Traditionally, unions organize the workforce in a specific sector and country. While unions have not been very successful at organizing the workforce of large digital companies, what could the role of other civil society actors be? Are ethical guidelines sufficient to protect gig workers or is there a need to is there a need for enforceable laws that stretch across borders and continents? So we're going to try to address some of those issues and questions today. And I will be joined by three people who will be sharing their experiences and um, their thoughts with us. And so the first, um, so we have Jane Tompheis from, uh, she's a founder and director of the Toolkit Skills. And we have Nuno, who is a um, researcher in Lisbon. And we have Amulia, who is a professor um, at the In Indian Institute of Management, and she is a lead researcher at FemLab. So each of our panelists, they're gonna give themselves a longer introduction, but each panelist will give us their input for five minutes, and then we'll start with some discussion and questions. And again, if you have any questions at all during the time, please put them into the chat. We'll be collecting them and answering them later. So, First, I would like to invite Jane to um, turn on her camera and unmute yourself. Come join me here on our stage, so to speak. Hi, Jane. Um, so <laughs> will, you will have five minutes uh, to share some of, the, some of the points that you'd like to make. And uh, would you please start with a visual description? Thank you, Barbara. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm Jean Wigai Campos. I'm a Kenyan woman um, and I'm wearing um, white, I think you can only see my face. I have a straight black hair and I have um, a white uh, ne pearl necklace and earrings. Um, very glad to be here. Thank you, Barbara, for starting us off on this very important topic. I am the founder and director of the Toolkit for Skills and Innovation based in Nairobi, Kenya. And the Toolkit, we focus on skilling youth in various sectors, including digital skills, uh, but, uh, primarily for them to acquire the skills that they require for current and future labor markets. Uh, when we talk about uh, our work, we look at an ecosystem where we start with youth mobilization, 
identification of skills in demand and exposing the youth to those skills, uh, bringing them to the toolkit skills and innovation hub to learn the skills, which is followed by certification and linkage to jobs. When we talk of uh, online jobs or the digital jobs, the experience that we have from toolkit is one, there is a big opportunity on the online work for young women and men in Kenya. However, there is still very low awareness levels about the opportunities for the online work. Number two, about the quality and the decency of the work. And when we talk about a decent job, we are looking at various factors. One is of course, a decent wage, a fair and a just wage for the work done. Uh, secondly, is knowing what are the rights of the worker if something does not go well. For example, if they're going to do a task, a digital task, and they're told that their accuracy was not 100%, so they will not be paid. What is the recourse they have? Third is the issue of the transnational nature of online jobs. Because for Kenyan youth, the question that um, we have, so for, for the transnational nature of online work, when you look at labor laws, the labor laws in Kenya or the labor laws in East Africa are easy to enforce, or at least somebody is aware of, if I'm not happy about this particular task or about what I'm paid or my insurance, or I'm paid through PayPal or another system where a lot of money was deducted in the international transfer of the payment, there would be an enforceable law. For the digital work, it is next to impossible for the worker to enforce anything because there is no law governing the employer because that employer is sitting in, a, in the global north and the employee or the worker is sitting in the global south, in Nairobi or any other part of Kenya. And I think these are, these are key questions that we need to look at the dignity of the worker. And in particular, I would just like to recap and say, first, we need to be, have an awareness framework. What are the rights of the online worker? Where is their recourse? Um, the other important issue is the enforceability of human rights by the employer, because the companies that are offering these digital tasks are mainly in the global north. Do the laws in their country protect the worker that is in Kenya or in any other part of Africa? And um, if that is not uh, enforceable as a law, what should be the threshold of decency in terms of uh, the protection, the hours of work and a minimum wage? Thank you very much, Barbara, back to you. Thank you so much, Jane. Um, wonderful. I'm inviting Nuno to turn on your camera and unmute yourself. There he is. Great. Um, so you will now have five minutes for your introduction and please don't forget to start with a self-description. Yeah, thank you very much. Barbara. So my name is Nuno Boavida. I am a Portuguese white male with glasses and a blue t-shirt. I'm now broadcasting from Lisbon, where I live in Portugal. Um, I am a, so a sociologist and I've been working as a researcher for uh, Nova University of Lisbon for the past 10 years. My research is very much related with work and technology. So uh, the reason I'm being here is connected with uh, a research project we conducted in Europe, in four countries in Europe, in Germany, Spain, Hungary, and Portugal, trying to understand the profile of gig workers as well as their strategies for collective representation. Um, the, the, the research project reached some conclusions which I would like to share with you and I hope that could be useful for you and for your work uh, back there. So on one hand, digital labor platforms allow access to labor markets, as well as provide limited autonomy and flexibility to those workers that need 
this type of work around the world, no matter they are in the south or in the north, they, it's an easy way to to get a, a paid in, to have a paid income. On the other hand, however, these new business models have created threats to the platform workers and organized labor, including risks associated with insecure, flexible worker. Um, it is important to understand that from our research around Europe, we found a very diverse and polarized workers profile uh, doing this gig, gig work. Uh, this is quite, quite important to the, the extent that it shows how different gig workers can be when we talk about it. So for example, on one hand, we found up workers who are highly skilled, highly motivated, very individualistic and can earn a lot of money. And on the other hand, we can we found uh, workers who are barely qualified, working in care services, food delivery, ride hailing, who have encountered a lot of precarity, as well as a lack of professional dignity and even life-threatening working conditions in, in some of these countries in Europe. So we now face uh, a lot of challenges. It's not just in the South, but also in the North. Uh, in our field work, we found out also that uh, most workers are self-employed, uh, not because they are really self-employed, but because they are deemed by these companies or these platforms as self-employed, uh, which prevents them to have labor protections and access to social security, which is, as you might know, is a strong social security in, in Europe. And this is one of the rights that workers have here. Um, it is also important to stress that um, these self, so, so-called self-employed workers uh, do not have uh, access to collective labor rights, or even in most cases to trade unions. Um, there are a lot of factors that can explain these situations. Uh, the first of them is that most of, not most, but many of these workers are immigrants and they arrive here, they need a fast income and they start working for these big companies, multinationals, most of them. And um, the difference we found within Europe are very much related with the type of industrial relations or if you want the type of trade unions and employees association relationships. Uh, we found, for example, that in Spain and Germany, uh, they have very encompassing industrial relations institutions. And this has, uh, pre has prevented these companies to uh, get into these markets and do whatever they wanna do. On the other hand, for example, in Portugal, uh, the, the weak, and low density labor uh, trade unions were not able to defend the markets and laws would change with a lot of lobbying from companies and they got into these countries and were able to penetrate and be successful here. And to, to, to finalize it, my, my final idea is that uh, these business models of these platform companies very significantly in digital platforms. Uh, Ubo, for example, in Portugal, works very differently from Spain. They, here they are right hailing, as well as they are, do food delivering, as well as they distribute and rent bicycles in, in, in the big cities. In Spain, they are not really big and taxi drivers are really strong. So I think the lesson is that if you want to engage and protect labor rights, the important thing is to make your voice heard in your home country, near the uh, uh, legislative bodies, and make sure that these companies do not enter and transform your labor rights into nothing, as probably they will in your country. So back to you, Barbara, thank you very much for these five minutes. I'm here at your disposal. <laughs> thank you, Nuno. All right, you can go ahead and turn off your camera for now. And I will ask Amulia to turn on your camera and unmute yourself. Hi. And uh, coming to us from India, would you please take five minutes and introduce us to the work that you've been doing? 
Thank you so much, Barbara. And a big thanks to my co-panelists for flagging urgent issues related to gig and platform work. Um, hi, everyone. This is Sai Amulya Raju from India, a brown woman with curly hair, wearing a white frock with blue embroidery. My research over the last eight years has been at the intersection of communication studies, digital cultures, and feminist theory. For the last three years, as the lead researcher of platformized salon services at FemLab and principal investigator of a Future of Workers project funded by the Southern Center for Inequality Studies, University of Witwatersrand, my research has focused on examining the gender dynamics of digital labor platforms and how workers organize themselves from a feminist lens. At FemLab, or Feminist Approaches to Labor Collectives, as we call it, we centered the experiences of women workers at the bottom of the supply chain and working in the informal sectors of construction, sanitation, platformized salon work, artisanal work, and ride hailing in India. We examined the challenges women workers face and how they use digital technologies to organize or collectivize themselves for better working conditions and in general navigating platform work. Why women workers in these particular sectors? The logic of masculinity informs what is considered work, who is considered a worker and what work timings are. Therefore, women performing care work, women in ride hailing services, who are drivers, women in artisanal work are often overlooked in academic literature and other popular discourses, especially in platform work. What we call Uberization of platform work, men in the visible professions of ride hailing and or delivery at the cost of women drivers and women in home-based platform economy, such as beauty work and domestic work, professions that are informal and unorganized. Now, gig economy comprises of both platform and non-platform work and fall into the the informal sector, primarily by virtue of the absence of an employer-employee relationship. Gig work and platform companies are increasingly important sector of the economy and have actively resisted compliance with existing policies that govern companies and their formal relationships. Our, full, our field work across sectors suggests that how gig and platform work is perceived by workers, the benefits and challenges of such work are contingent on gender and context. And here context, inclu context includes which country and region, nature and site of work. For instance, both salon and domestic work involve care work of different kinds. One involves bodily care and cleansing, and the other involves home care and cleaning. Both stigmatized in countries like India because of the fact that they involve eliminating impurities of bodies and homes. In India, the entrenched caste system is such that any work involving waste is relegated to those at the bottom of the caste hierarchy. Globally, statistics show that such undesirable, indecent work is performed by immigrants and refugees, mostly black, brown, let's just say mostly non-white publics who belong to non-dominant classes. Our research indicates that there are wins and losses associated with platform work. Women workers in the salon sector, for instance, are happy that once stigmatized salon work is now being professionalized and organized through digital labor platforms. They're also aware of the trade-offs that they're making and actively exercising agency. At FemLab, we've been very careful about framing issues with platform work to also focus on what women workers say has worked for them. For instance, professionalization of care work that they're involved in, flexibility and improved, to, and improved earning are wins for them. But that does not mean that platform work is not precarious. Information asymmetry, obscure algorithms at work, nudging workers to take up just another gig Right, these are all these all mark this work, and this is where laws are important, both country specific and at the global level, to empower workers so they don't lose out on work opportunities and are not forced to make trade-offs. The current laws in India don't favor gig workers and platform workers. There is a difficulty in even defining who gig workers are and who platform workers are. This has meant that workers have had to organize themselves to make themselves heard. However, like most unions in India, these unions work working on the voices and uh, on voicing the concerns of workers and their welfare are dominated by men and focused on work in public spaces such as platform drivers and delivery workers. Does that mean that there is no mobilization amongst women workers in other kinds of work? 
it would seem so if one were to imagine collectivization and mobilizing is limited to trade unions. Our research shows that in order to resist and protest against exploitation by both platforms and customers, women workers in specific segments like salon work are mobilizing themselves through WhatsApp groups and whisper networks. However, these collectivizations aren't enough. We need the four interdependent forces of regulation, which is law, architecture or design in this case, social norms and market to be transformed to achieve dignity in work, dignity at work and dignity from work. Thank you so much, Barbara, and look forward to the discussion. Thank you for sharing, Amulia. You can keep your camera on and stay here with me. Um, I'd like to invite Jane and Nuno to turn your cameras back on. And um, again, for anyone who is listening to us live, if you have any questions, please put them into the chat. Um, I can see one there, which is fantastic. We'll come back to that in a few moments. Um, but wonderful, now that we have uh, the three of you together, I want to give you space to um, ask each other questions, to clarify or, um, yeah, get a better picture. So um, I know that Jane has a question for Amulia, so I want to, we can start there and um, you can unmute yourself and ask your question, Jane. And you can all just leave your cameras on, the three of you, so we'll stay together. Thank you um, so much, Barbara. Um, yes, uh, Professor Amulia, when, I, when we look at the online uh, digital jobs for young women in Nairobi or in Kenya, we find that uh, they may not be able, sometimes they are able to get onto the platforms. Uh, other times they may be going for days without work and this compels them then to take up any job available even when the task may not be paying, um, may be paying below the minimum wage. So the question I have for you is, uh, how have you been able to organize and support um, young women to be able to continuously access um, digital tasks that uh, you would consider as giving decent jobs to these young women? Um, thank you so much for the question, Jane. Uh, FemLab is an action research-based project. Uh, we do not provide uh, gigs uh, to women. We do not organize them, but because of the kind of lens that we've adopted, feminist lens, we've tried to see how we can energize Organizing, organizing that has already been going on. For instance, women workers um, on digital platform, working for digital platforms, uh, have been organizing themselves through WhatsApp groups. And our endeavor has to uh, has been to understand how we can energize them with the support of uh, NGOs and civil society organizations already working in these sectors and connecting women to such collectives and organizations. Thank you. Thank you. Has the government been supportive in, uh, in uh, registering those collectives? The government has promised time and again that uh, there is a, there's a bill that has been tabled in the parliament for a long time, but that has not seen the light of day and they still seem to be discussing and operationalizing what gig work means, what platform work means, and there's a lot of homework to be done by the state. Uh, but the think tank, uh, Niti Aayog that is supported by the government of India has been doing a lot of background work and research to understand the kind of populations, the demography that is involved in this kind of work and what they can do to leverage the demographic dividend. Um, but that is still in the stages of planning, not at the ex execution stage. Thank you. Thank you, Amelia. I do have a question for Jane, if I may, Barbara. Perfect. Yes, please do. Thank you so much. Um, Jane, thank you so much for that uh, description of the work that you've been doing. I'm just wondering, um, mostly digital platforms, digital labor platforms have their own terms and conditions. Um, is a part of your, I mean, uh, as, a, as part of what you already do, do you also educate workers in terms of translating what can be complex legal jargon? Uh, of the terms and conditions, translate them into something that is understandable um, for the general population who are doing this kind of work. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. 
So for the toolkit, uh, we provide the digital skills uh, or even upskilling because sometimes we have uh, partners who want a certain set of digital skills that the young women we have uh, we are connecting to these jobs may not possess. So we have an upskilling program and uh, we also discuss with the partners who want to get access to the database of toolkit uh, skilled uh, digital workers. We ask them what is on offer. And uh, we've had to turn down some things because we could see that they are, they are going to offer an opportunity for work, but in reality, it is not an opportunity for work uh, because they wanted to pay lower wages than what the person would earn if they were doing manual work um, in a domestic, uh, in somebody's home or even at a construction site. And this is, uh, this is the, that wage is the take-home wage without counting the costs. And uh, a lot of these young women uh, will then have to pay, uh, they incur the cost of being on the internet continuously for the digital task. Um, we have, however, had a very good experience with one uh, platform that, is, um, that, is, uh, that has social justice ethos from France. They're called Isahit. And they've given us opportunity for young women to work for a period of up to two years, so long as they are either in college or they have a project. And this is what we have found to be one of the most decent uh, digital jobs because they pay three euros per hour. Um, many of the others fall far way below. And in that sense, we've had to encourage the young women to wait until they can find uh, an online employer, even if they are freelancing that at least would give them a wage that meets their costs and gives them uh, some wage to live off. Thank you. Thanks to both of you. I actually wanna come to Nuno and ask, um, because both Jane and Amelia were talking a bit about the gender divide, and I'm curious if you've seen um, similar things in the research that you've done, um, and if you can address that as well. Thank you, Barbara. Um, most, of my, most of our research um, was carried out in platforms who are uh, in Europe, uh, mostly male, uh, although some females could be found, uh, with the exception of professional services where freelancers go to Upwork and there you might find uh, the majority is, is, is female, highly skilled females. So uh, although we can find uh, we could find some some unskilled uh, females working in, in Uber driver as Uber drivers or as or as in food distributions, mostly they are mostly done by 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 males. Uh huh. And so, is is the fact that there's maybe less research about it due to what Amelia was describing as things maybe not be not being considered work and so the women aren't being counted in those places or like does do you understand like could there be some other reason or it's just the type of work like what accounts for the fact that you're seeing less females because there's there's enough women in the workforce um, okay, so one of the reasons might be that a large proportion of, of this labor force are composed by immigrants, and those are, they tend to be uh, dominated by males. The other one is that uh, gig work uh, is seen in, in, in these four countries that we study in Europe as a kind of either a part-time job, uh, and therefore females do not have uh, the ability to do to do more than one job, as normally uh, you would find here, or uh, because uh, simply they have, they have, uh, they are, they see this gig economy as a, as a more precarious, less interesting, and advantageous for, for them than actually having a, a job with, the, with all, all the rights and uh, employment rights that come with it, so. I think that's probably an explanation takes into consideration these at least these three aspects. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That's that helps to give a bigger picture. Amelia, thanks for raising your hand. How would you like to respond? 
Um, uh, thank you, Nuno, for uh, talking about this dimension for Barbara flagging it as well. I'm wondering, are there issues with accessibility to digital technologies amongst these immigrant women? Do you think, do you have anything uh, on statistics um, on the accessibility of digital technologies, mobile phone devices, internet? Okay, we know that uh, traditionally uh, those professions connected with the ICTs, with uh, uh, information communication technology, they are also dominated by males, and there's a low proportion of females. On the other hand, you can also argue that uh, uh, for this, for most of these jobs, you only need a, a mobile phone. Well, it has to be a good one, and this has a cost uh, associated with it, and and there's that is probably one 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 reason accounting for some discrimination, uh, and also there's some in some of these jobs like ride hailing or food distribution they are also dangerous, or, and you can also find uh, networks of criminal activity sometimes related to it, and uh, I think uh, it, the propensity is to have more males uh, doing these jobs because they are dangerous. Uh, yeah, here, at least in Europe. Thank you very much for the question, Amalia. Um, Jane, I think you also had a question for Nuno, is that right? Yes, um, thank you so much, uh, Nuno. Um, what I wanted to find out uh, in terms of the research, is where do you see the legal protection coming in, in terms of uh, are there, is there, is in your research, are you able to see, are the laws changing? Is there an inclination to protect uh, these uh, online workers legally? Uh, are the traditional methods of uh, social justice for labor movements uh, beginning to kick in? Or what would you say? Okay, it is different if you if you talk about Germany than what you find out in Spain or in Hungary or in Portugal. Um, you would see that there is now one one directive approved at the European Parliament. And that directive uh, stimulated a lot of debates in European countries about the gig economy and to what extent it can hinder labor rights. It was very much uh, debated here in Europe and. Uh, there is a, a lot of positions uh, in, the, in the European Parliament towards creating more national legislation, and the directive also is very influential. So although in, in, in Germany, for example, you have very good legislation protecting the uh, workers doing uh, platform work, uh, in other countries that came later, uh, for example, last year in Spain, you have they have passed legislation towards protecting uh, food distribution in the country. They have previous one with uh, about Uber and ride hailing. For example, in the other two countries, such as Portugal and, and Hungary, there was no legislation until very recently. In Portugal, it was approved two weeks ago. Uh, they are trying to give uh, um, proper employment to, to these workers here in Portugal. But in Hungary, you cannot see any move towards uh, legislations. So although you find the debates are increasing and they tend to, to create a critical mass to approve legislation to protect these workers and integrate them into the labor force, there is still some uh, work to be done in other countries, such as Portugal as a, and even in, in Hungary, as I told you. Uh, this is a slow process. It takes time people to get conscious about the need to integrate this, this labor into the proper labor force, but eventually we'll get there in a few years, probably. The whole Europe will have laws uh, defending these, these workers and also uh, commercial laws towards how they, how these business models actually work and, and if they are doing some, uh, everything correctly, and not uh, uh, not taking advantage of unfair competition, as some of them are. Uh, but I guess in the end, it will take some time to have to have proper situation stabilized. It's a new thing to a certain extent, and that societies need to debate 
and to integrate and to and then to move on with regulations. Uh, I wonder how is in, in Kenya, probably you can give us uh, uh, about the, the regulations that could be, could come into force in the next uh, years, Jane. Yeah, um, thank you so much, uh, Nuno, um, because the kind of research uh, you have done, I think it reveals uh, really also the need uh, for awareness by the, by the workers. Uh, the situation as we have seen in Kenya is uh, what has been most organized is of course the taxi hailing uh, apps like uh, Uber. There have been uh, several rounds of uh, strikes by Uber drivers where they felt that maybe it was, uh, they were not being able to meet their ends, especially uh, since, the, um, since the cost of living is rising uh, daily, uh, just like elsewhere in the, on the globe, given the war in Europe. So that's, uh, I think, the closest we have seen to an organized form or even awareness. But that is because they are all on one app. Uh, it's very different when it comes to freelancers, uh, the youth that we have trained for online work, uh, because they're really not in a situation, in a, in a, they, they don't have, uh, they're not on one platform, uh, they're working individually, sometimes it's freelancing, uh, but even where they work in a group, it's still very difficult for them to organize themselves in a way that would give them any leverage or any um, lever to stop work because the threat is if you don't want to do it, there are uh, many others waiting in line to do the digital task. Um, in terms of uh, the legislation, uh, the, the, what we have seen is there is definitely a lot of uh, awareness. Um, our government is very digitally uh, aware. Uh, Kenya has the, a very good uh, framework uh, like for the digital economy. Uh, government services are digitized. Uh, there has been a law on uh, data protection, uh, but in terms of uh, digital jobs and digital tasks uh, that are given to Kenyan workers by multinationals, there is really um, not much. It is still too new. And unfortunately, even the uh, visibility that has been there is for the most negative things. Uh, the unethical one where people just highlight or oh, American students are sending their thesis to Kenyan students who are very brilliant, but cannot afford to go to university to write for them the thesis. So sometimes you find that uh, it is more the worst news that is making, uh, making it to getting the publicity, but not really the honest uh, hard work of Kenyan gig workers that are being exploited or are unable to make ends meet despite putting in their best um, effort in terms of trying to access uh, digital devices, uh, remaining online to complete the digital tasks. And like I said at the beginning, the accuracy levels expected of this work are so high and there is no, um, there is no element even of training for the gig worker. So there is no training, it's just a question of, this is the task, this is the accuracy. If you don't meet it, we don't pay you but they have really no recourse. And uh, that is where I think it then comes back to what we were saying at the beginning of where then do we start the conversation about a decent pay or a decent job for a young woman sitting in Nairobi confronted by a multinational sitting in California or elsewhere on the globe. Thank you, back to you. Yeah, thank you, Jane. Amulia, I'm gonna come over to you. Thanks, Barbara. I have a question for both Nuno and Jane. Um, in India, we have a fairly strong unionization organization amongst taxi drivers. Then Uber comes in and disrupts what is a very well-organized taxi occupation. And they've diluted, they've sort of divided drivers into private taxi drivers and uh, ride-hailing platform drivers, diluting the unity amongst workers. Do you see similar repercussions in, say, Kenya and in Portugal or other places that you've conducted research in? Well, if Maybe I may... Can... Okay, go ahead, Nuno. Well, uh, if I may uh, say that uh, Uber had a very bad uh, entrance in, 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 in Portugal, for example, they start lobbying company, uh, 
politicians before they open up the, the, the company and they ask politicians not to pay attention to regulations. And then suddenly they start uh, as an innovation in society and, and the kind of uh, got in, into the front door of the economy suddenly. And uh, the, the ability for Uber drivers to organize was very much hindered by the fact that the legislation uh, forced Uber drivers to have their own companies. So forced them to have an intermediary between them and the, the multinational. Therefore, the organization, the labor organization of, and the collective representation of these workers is very, very poor. Nevertheless, it is the only uh, situation where, where we have traditional labor trade unions trying to organize workers. And they actually were success, successful. They were able to organize workers in big cities and they are now representing Uber drivers and ride hailing as a whole. If you, if you look at, uh, for example, food distribution, is still in the infancy, still beginning to have the first contacts with, uh, with food distributors. And it's very difficult. So the strategies the multinationals adopt is very aggressive. Uh, they, as, as, as many analysts have been saying, they are burning venture capital in Silicon Valley to using unfair competition in the other markets. And, and by doing that, they destroyed the organization of taxi drivers, which by the way was low density. They were not very organized. And now you only have uh, Uber drivers starting to be organized and no more taxi drivers. If you look in Spain, it's the other way around. They are very highly organized, the taxis. My, our neighbors, they are very organized with the trade unions and they they, they were able to face Uber. Uh, it's not expressive in, in Spain anymore, neither in Germany, Uber doesn't work in Germany, neither in Hungary. So it depends a lot on the reaction and how you prepare the interests of a company in, in, one, in one country, I, I would say. It's an interesting question. Uh, Jane, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah. Yes, and um, yes, I would add uh, to what Nuno has said because it was similar in Kenya. At the entry of uh, Uber, it was uh, initially very difficult for organized uh, Kenyan taxi uh, associations that were already working, whether it's at the airport or at the, in Kenya, we have a huge hospitality industry. Um, and of course, for Uber, they came in much more organized. They are using an app that is very well supported. It doesn't have downtime. And uh, there were many young people who didn't have, uh, who didn't own a taxi that were able to either take out uh, credit or were able to go to that initial concept of Uber that for people who own a car and they're not using it the whole day, they would give it to somebody to earn for them uh, extra income. Uh, it disrupted the uh, taxi uh, transport system. There have been uh, challenges, uh, clashes, and um, uh, the good thing is that there are also some local apps that then came up. So uh, like a little cab um, and others. And although these are not like strictly very large competition for Uber, what then it turned out to be, most of the taxi companies were then also compelled to join uh, some, of, some of these apps. Otherwise, uh, they were badly hit uh, in terms of, uh, the, in, in terms of the, their regular uh, revenue that they were used to for years. And I think it's not just on the cab hailing uh, services. I think there is now this, um, increasingly we are seeing these uh, global um, monopolies that come in with a lot of strength and uh, it's across different value chains because they have um, uh, the funding, they have uh, digital systems that can run throughout. And I think this then disrupt, disrupts a lot of uh, other work. We have seen, for example, uh, of course, when they come in, there is a lot of marketing, like this is really great. Uh, they can um, deliver everything that you have. But then like in Kenya, we have the Mama Boga, who is the, the lady who sells uh, vegetables. And uh, of course, if everybody then will order vegetables online and they can be delivered, it will definitely affect uh, such livelihoods. Uh, and uh, of course, we, are, we still have also to look at the digital divide because it may not be possible for the Mama Boga to jump into uh, that uh, value chain 
acquire the digital skills, acquire access to a smart device, and in any way connect to income uh, from her traditional uh, vegetable retailing to now moving to an online uh, system where part of her work is being a commission to a big organization, a, a big company, a, a global North corporation. So I think there are still a lot of issues. Uh, this, uh, when we talk about the gig economy, there is still a lot, a lot, we are still seeing the initial repercussions of this, uh, of what these are doing to livelihoods. And maybe the taxi hailing is one, uh, but increasingly there are many others. And that question will have to be then asked on both sides, on the legal protection, but also how do we create awareness and organization so that when those when livelihoods are disrupted, there is an alternative because it's affecting somebody's uh, income, somebody's children, somebody's uh, health bill, and uh, other aspects that cannot just be wished away. And we say globalization has kicked in with the digital solutions for because it's not it doesn't translate that easily that these digital solutions are meeting the needs of the worker that they are displacing. Oh, my goodness, Jane, I think you've <laughs> done a really good job summarizing a lot of the issues um, for gig work. And I don't think it's just in the global south either. Um, I think the global north is seeing these problems as well, that gig work is taking over traditional uh, work environments and um, not providing people with with like the social um, insurances and and framework that uh, traditional or jobs in the past have as well. So it's this is actually quite a big topic. Our time is running out and we have. So thank you, first of all. But I have. Um, there have been some great questions. There's a question from Mutoni in the chat, and I wonder, Jane, if you might be able to address that in the chat, um, because it seems like a relatively simple answer about how workers are paid. Um, but I want to, Ushnish asked a really interesting question, in my opinion, because it goes, and Amulya said it too, um, because it goes to some of the cultural issues that this gig economy brings with it. And it's, um, in the context of gig work, do you see replication of U.S. or Eurocentric values based on incentives and rewards, um, particularly thinking of gig work in content moderation, labeling of AI, but also theoretically transportation, um, for instance, the U.S. model of individual car ownership? So we just have a couple minutes, but I am wondering if um, particularly Amulia or Jane, you have examples of when you've seen some of this maybe transfer of values from the north to the south or assumption of transfer of values. I'm seeing you nodding your head, Amulia, so I'll come over to you first. Yeah, thank you, Barbara, and thank you, Ushmish, for such a great question. Um, and it's not just transportation either. This is even in the case of platformized salon services. For instance, there's a there is an assumption uh, by, on the part of the platforms, digital platforms, that service partners have private vehicles and would actually take up gig work if given enough impetus, if given enough incentives. While some women may have private vehicles to go to a gig, to go to a task at say late in the late evenings or nights, some of them are dropped to their location by their husbands. So married women workers think of it as safety network. If you think of high risk areas where they might be molested or raped, there are high risk areas in India, like say Noida or Delhi. In that case, women workers think of it as a safety net. For them to take up a late evening slot is then entirely dependent on uh, the demand and their husband's availability. There's an assumption on the part of the platforms that these decisions are taken by an individual on an individual level, when in reality it really isn't. The partner and by extension, the family is just as involved in these decision-making processes. And that is something that platforms don't take into account as well, what we call shadows of context. This context is important. And, and although I don't want to stereotype India as a collective culture, there is definitely a difference between the individualistic culture of say the US or the Europe in general, and the kind of culture that is dominant in other societies um, in the global South. That was a great question. Thank you, Shnish. Thanks so much, Thanks so much Amelia. Great. Uh, Nuno, have you seen anything in your research that would address this question? There are some elements of uh... 
of being against the, the, the platforms, for example, in Germany. Um, they simply didn't want to have this Uberization of the economy and they closed the doors and Uber was not able to get in as well as many other good distributors and so on. So, I mean, they, they, they don't agree with this type of uh, individualistic approach and also free riding and so on. And they just close it and they do it not just by the by issuing laws, but also because the institutions are very much against throughout the public debate. And they know it's going to happen at public debate. They prepare themselves very well in these their institutions, and they strongly they are strongly against this this type of operations from these companies. And they didn't they didn't get in to to the German market, for example. And that's also true to a certain extent in Spain. Uh, the organization of these uh, forces is very important to prevent them to get in and to to have to have them in their own way at least. Yeah. I mean, but in the case of Uber, they were delayed, but they have entered the German market. They're everywhere in Berlin. So well, it, it took it took more time and money maybe to throw at it, but um, many taxi drivers are also Uber drivers here. Maybe, uh, yeah, but that's one decade afterwards. Here they start in 2014, I mean, in the beginning, and they yeah. established uh, a lobby company to, to make sure that their efforts were very good and they did it their own way. I guess I guess we we welcome this kind of uh, Anglo-Saxon model of of the of, of, of the economy, and therefore, in, for example, in Portugal, it's easier than it would be in Spain, in Spain or Germany. Mm. Okay, I hate to say I think our time is up um, because we need to finish on time, so we're going to have to leave it there. Um, but I think. What's become clear from what I've heard from the three of you today, and by the way, thank you so much to all three of you for your input, for your wonderful questions for each other and your thoughts and insights on this topic. Um, gig work is still so new and what um, is clear to me as an action point for uh, civil society organizations is bringing much more awareness to governments about laws that are needed to be made because it's new and uh, it's not something that we've experienced before and have to now create protections for. And um, so I hope that those of you who are listening will take that with you from this time together um, and, and be loud <laughs> about um, making clear what's been happening and, and some of the issues for gig workers. So um, once again, thank you to the three of you, to Jane, Amelia, and Nuno for joining us this afternoon um, or evening, wherever you are. Thanks to all of you who joined us from around the world. Um, all of the dialogues you are now available as videos and audio on the Center's YouTube and podcast channels.